We're up to the book of Joel, and as we're going to be seeing in the coming weeks, there is a very logical order in all of these books, and Hosea and Joel form the introduction. And I'm going to read right now from Joel 2, verses 28 through 32. Hear the word of God. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maidservants I will pour out my spirit in those days. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word, and I pray that as we look into it, that our hearts would be warmed and encouraged at your incredible grace, your patience with us, your disciplines in our lives, your drawing us more and more to be conformed to the image of Christ. And I pray even this morning, we would experience more of your sanctification, more of your wisdom, more of your insight, your joy, and the fruit of your Holy Spirit. Bless this, your people, in Jesus' name, amen. When I was a child in Ethiopia, my parents were missionaries there for 30 years, I saw one of the scariest things that I've ever seen in my life. It was a locust plague. Now you might be surprised that I consider that to be one of the scariest things ever, given some of the super crazy things I have done in my life. But I was a boy, so that might have affected how I saw it, but it was one of the strangest things ever. This massive, cloud of locusts completely blotted out the sun. It was almost as dark as nighttime until the locusts finally descended on the ground and covered absolutely everything. You could not see the ground and uh, they were vying to chew up everything in the land so that what one hour was lush greenness a few hours later was absolute barrenness, not a green thing to be seen in sight. And the noise itself was hard to describe. Uh, my memory, which is a faulty memory, but it was like a combination of a jet engine and the sounds of a forest fire all at the same time. It was very, very eerie. Now, as a kid, I thought, cool, a bunch of insects out there. I ran out into the cloud of insects and was so scratched up within seconds, I ran right back inside. But uh, HistoryNet tells of a similar locust plague that hit the Great Plains of America in 1874. Uh, even Nebraska was hit very, very hard. They said that the insects blotted out the sun for as long as six hours in some places. When they finally descended to the ground, they covered every shrub, every plant, every tree, even breaking off large limbs from trees because of the weight. They were more than a foot thick on the ground, okay, just competing. They were piling on top of each other, just competing for chewing every fiber that they could run across. Once the green vegetation was gone, they started eating the bark and then the wood and even wooden implements were sometimes like the handles of pitchforks and uh, uh, rakes and things like that were completely chewed off. Uh, they ate the wool off the backs of the sheep 
Now, there are reports, I've not been able to confirm these, but there were reports that uh, people claimed that the clothes were eaten off their backs. And uh, when they had eaten up all of the vegetation outside and everything they could, they were crawling in through the nooks and the crannies of the doors, eating the blankets and the mattresses and curtains and everything that was not contained in glass or in metal. Some people reportedly went stark raving mad because they could not get rid of these insects. According to the 1880 U.S. Entomological Commission report, the Great Plains Locust Plague, quote, covered a swath equal to the combined areas of Connecticut, Delaware, Maine, Maryland, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, and Vermont. But it was here in the Midwest, okay? Though a similar plague the next year was estimated to be 1,800 miles long and 110 miles wide, that was huge, this dwarfed that plague. This was two million square miles of insects everywhere, completely. In fact, just the excrement alone made the ponds and the rivers and the creeks completely undrinkable. It was gross. Uh, <clears throat> the um, millions of miles that they had gone through and eaten looked like they had been completely ravaged by a fire. Trees that hadn't been completely demolished were nothing but white skeletons. Leslie Allen points out that even smaller locust plagues can be very devastating. <clears throat> he said a swarm can devour in one day what 40,000 people eat in one year. In a 1958 visitation, Ethiopia lost 167,000 metric tons of grain, enough to feed more than a million people for a year. All of that wiped out in days. And so even though we might not be used to thinking about locusts as being at all terrifying, they were something that was a fearful sight. They were very, very much dreaded by the ancient peoples. They were scary. Now, from what we hear in the book of Joel, it sounds like a similar plague had hit Joel's country of Judah. It was one of the worst plagues in Israel's history, which is saying a lot because there were a lot of locust plagues down through their history. Now, there is debate on the dating of Joel with conservatives, we'll forget about what the liberals date, but with conservatives dating it anywhere from 870 BC all the way up to 400 BC. That's a 470 year spread. Uh, but uh, I have several reasons for thinking that Joel was a post-exilic prophet. There are good people who differ on this, but I think Calvin, quite a number of people, think he was a post-exilic prophet. For example, chapter 3, verse 2, seems to put the Babylonian exile in the past tense. But as Calvin pointed out, it really didn't matter where you date it, the application is going to be still the same. So we're going to dig straight into chapter 1, of Joel. This is the first locust plague. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders, and give ear all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or even in the days of your fathers? He addresses the elders first because if they will be the first to come to repentance and to lead and call the people to repentance, maybe the others will follow as well. But elders should be on the forefront of repentance. He tells these elders, verse 3, tell your children about it. Let your children tell their children and their children another generation what the chewing locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. 
What the swarming locust left, the crawling locust has eaten. And what the crawling locust left, the consuming locust has eaten. The elders were supposed to preach on current events and give a biblical exposition of what was happening. In this case, they were called not to attribute those locusts to chance. Okay, God was involved. In fact, later on in this book, he is going to explicitly call these locusts God's army. Okay, so Joel is interpreting God's providences, and he's encouraging these elders, you need to be looking at the providences that are all around you through biblical eyes. You need to be interpreting them as well. Interestingly, he mentions four kinds of locusts here. You can sometimes tell a lot about a culture by the number of words that they use to describe a given thing. Uh, for example, the Hawaiians have 13 different words for lava because volcanoes and lava make up such a part of their culture that they got to be able to distinguish between all of these kinds of lava. Uh, the Yupik Eskimo language has 15 different words for snow and apparently there's some other Eskimo languages that have around 12 different words for snow and you might wonder why snow is snow. No, they live in snow so much that they've got to be able to distinguish all of these varieties of snow that are out there. Well, in a similar way, the Hebrew language has nine different words for locusts because locusts were a very important part of their uh, culture and they wanted to distinguish. And in verse four, he uses four of those nine words. And what was the reason for this insect plague? Unlike Hosea, which was much earlier and during a time of apostasy, you don't have any mention of idolatry. You don't have any mention of gross sins that are out there. No matter which era you place this in, commentators point out it could not have been a time of great apostasy. This discipline from the Lord came during a time when at least uh, most Jews were at least nominally believers and they claimed to follow the Lord. They probably went to church every, every Lord's Day. Um, but the people had been taking God's mercies and blessings for granted and began little by little to be insensitive to the Holy Spirit. And so the, God was basically saying, okay, you don't appreciate the blessings. Let me take them away for a while and uh, have you learn to appreciate what they are. In any case, it's interesting that the only sin called out by God in this chapter is the sin of drunkenness. Verse 5. Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the new wine, for it has been cut off from your mouth. And then he goes on to liken this locust swarm to an army of soldiers. For a nation has come up against my land, strong and without number. His teeth are the teeth of a lion, and he has the fangs of a fierce lion. He has laid waste my vine and ruined my fig tree. He has stripped it bare and thrown it away. Its branches are made white. Why? Because the bark has all been chewed off by the locusts. Verse 8, lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering have been cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn who minister to the Lord. The field is wasted. The land mourns for the grain is ruined. The new wine is dried up. The oil fails. Be ashamed, you farmers. Wail, you vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine is dried up and the fig tree has withered. The pomegranate tree, the palm tree also, and the apple tree. All the trees of the field are withered. 
Surely joy has withered away from the sons of men. Gird yourselves and lament, you priests. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come, lie all night in sackcloth, you who minister to my God. Have you ever wept and prayed all night long? That's what God called the priests to do. Why? Well, he goes on, next part of verse 13, for the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. So the population suffers, the priests are going to suffer right along with them. Verse 14, consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord, alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand, it shall come as destruction from the Almighty. Everyone in that nation was devastatingly impacted. Now let me make a theological point about eschatology. Uh, this is the first of five occurrences of the phrase, the day of the Lord in the book of Joel. Uh, Premillennialists tend to treat most day of the Lord references as if they only can refer to the last day of history. That is simply not true. And this is at least one case where even they will admit, yep, this is in past history. There are many days of the Lord because there are many days of judgment in history. And the devastation of these locusts was so huge that he calls it the day of the Lord. It was a day of judgment that warranted the church being gathered together in a public assembly of repentance, weeping over their sins and beseeching God for his mercies. And here's the question that I have for us in modern America. Are we willing to do this? Would we be willing to obey a call from the elders to spend a day in weeping, mourning over the sins of the nation? You know, the pilgrims and the Puritans, they repeatedly did this, and they saw great significance in the catastrophes that they faced. They saw God's hand in mildew, sickness, forest fires, insect infestations, famine, and many other things. We moderns tend to do the opposite. We petition the government to fix the problem rather than crying out in repentance. Uh, we try to give scientific explanations rather than calling upon the Lord. And I think that the book of Joel is a book that rebukes the practical deism of the modern church and calls us to interpret all of life, yes, including the insects, all of life through biblical eyes. Verses 16 and following continue to describe the devastation that had happened. Is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under the clods, storehouses are in shambles, barns are broken down, for the grain is withered. How the animals groan! The herds of cattle are restless because they have no pasture. Even the flocks of sheep suffer punishment. Uh, he mentions the sheep suffering. It may well have been, just like in the Great Plains uh, locust plague, that the wool was eaten off their backs. Verse 19, O Lord, to you I cry out, for fire has devoured the open pastures and a flame has burned all the trees of the field. Now commentators are divided on whether this is an additional catastrophe, some fire sweeping through, or whether this is uh, describing the aftermath of the locust plague that looked like a forest fire had gone through. Actually, if you take a look in your outlines, I've given the first picture there. That looks like a forest fire had swept through, but it's not. That was simply the aftermath of a, a locust plague. 
But locusts sound like crackling fire, and they produce a result much like fire. But either way you interpret it, verse 20 continues in the same vein. The beasts of the field also cry out to you, for the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the open pastures. Does it seem strange that God would inflict this kind of punishment upon a nation who, for the most part, had upright citizens? Certainly, one sin is mentioned, drunkenness, but a lot of commentators, they're puzzled. They say, well, normally when prophets bring these kinds of covenant lawsuits and judgments and interpretation of judgments, they're pointing out all of the sins that warranted this judgment, and Joel doesn't do that. There's only one sin that's mentioned uh, here, and so they're puzzled. What's going on? Was it that the sin was so obvious and flagrant? And I think not. I think probably the Holy Spirit of God was already convicting them of inner sins, maybe that were not visible. And, 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 and uh, Joel did not need to be specific. Joel's call seems to be a call to self-examination and repentance any time we experience a manifestation of God's Deuteronomy 28 type disciplines. If those Deuteronomy 28 problems affect us individually, well, we should repent individually. Or at least do some self-examination to see if there's sin that needs to be repented of. If it affects our family, we should call our family to repentance. If it affects our society, we should call uh, for corporate uh, repentance. And that repentance can turn away the devastation. That's the point. Deuteronomy 28 says that when God's people begin to forget God, take him for granted, he can be creative very creative in the problems that he brings into our lives. Now he does in that chapter, Deuteronomy 28, mention two times locusts, that's verses 38 and 42, but he also mentions simple things like your sourdough bread batches going consistently bad. It's like, I can't get this bread to work. That's verse 17, or losing cattle, verse 18, or having fevers, verse 22, or mildew. Have you ever thought of mildew? You know, mildew keeps coming back in your bathroom as something you should cry out to the Lord for. Mildew, lack of rain, verses 23 through 24. Itchy skin. I don't see people itching here too much, but if you got real, real itchy skin that just could not be solved, there might be something to call out to the Lord for. Worms infesting your fruit, verse 39. Prolonged illness, verse 59. Many, many other problems. Now, modern Christians are skeptical that their problems have anything whatsoever to do with sin or with discipline. Rarely do their troubles lead them to cry out to God in repentance. They are too scientifically sophisticated to take the Bible seriously. But there ought to be calls for solemn assemblies of repentance crying out to God when we experience disasters. I am convinced that if Joel lived today, or at least if he lived in California, He'd be calling California to solemn assemblies of repentance because why? The forest fires that keep cropping up or the mudslides last year or in other parts of the states. Hurricane Maria in 2017 that produced $90 billion worth of damage and that was not the only hurricane that year. Hurricane Harvey in the same year produced an estimated $125 billion of damage or Hurricane Irma the same year produced $53.5 billion of damage. Basically, Joel is telling us, guys, gals, children, quit thinking like Americans and begin thinking biblically about these disasters that are coming upon our nation. God is constantly at work in disciplining nations. 
Now there is another catastrophe mentioned in the first part of Joel chapter 2. And there is debate. There is debate, legitimate debate, I think, on whether verses 1 through 11 is describing, it's giving a warning of another locust plague that will come, that Joel is in the sometime future, you know, after the first chapter, sometime describing, or whether that is a symbolic description of a human army that's coming into plague. So there are people on both sides of that question. Of those who see this section as describing a locust-like army of men, there's a wide variety of interpretations. Some see it as an imminent invasion of Assyrian armies. Well, they have to date the book way early, you know, 870 BC. Others see it as the uh, the Babylonian armies under Nebuchadnezzar, well, they have to date it to the late pre-exilic time. And then there's others, and this would be a majority of modern evangelical scholars. Um, I've changed my view on this. I used to date uh, Joel much earlier, but I've been convinced by the evidence it's post-exilic. But if that was the case, there's only one imminent possibility for a human army of this magnitude, it would be Esther's battle of Gog and Magog that we've looked at before, when it looked like every Jew would be annihilated. Now the clues in the book are not absolutely definitive. While verse 20 could possibly be describing the massive number of human bodies that fell in Israel during that war, and we looked at those numbers of bodies, I think it could just as easily be referring to the rotting of billions of locusts. Look at verse 20. But I will remove far from you the northern army and will drive him away into the barren and desolate land with his face toward the eastern sea and his back toward the western sea. His stench will come up and his foul odor will rise because he has done monstrous thing. things. Now I take it simply as billions of dead locusts rotting, creating a stench. Others take it as human bodies lying around, creating a stench. But either way you take it, whether human army or another locust army, Joel shows that God's hand of discipline is involved. That's the key point. Look at verses 1 through 11, chapter 2. Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand. At hand. Notice this is not thousands of years in the future. The day of the Lord in chapter 1 was past tense. The day of the Lord in chapter 2 is future, but it's an imminent future to Joel. It's about to happen, okay? So it's his imminent future, it's our distant past. Verse 2, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick, thick darkness, like the morning clouds spread over the mountains. Well, that sure looks like a massive cloud of locusts to me, so many that it blots out the sun. Second part of verse 2, likens these locusts to an army, a people come, great and strong, the like of whom has never been, nor will there ever be any such after them, even for many successive generations. A fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Surely nothing shall escape them. Again, to me, this sounds like locusts. And uh, so does the description of their looks and their sounds in verses 4 and following. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses and like swift steeds, so they run. 
With a noise like chariots, over mountaintops they leap. Like the noise of a flaming fire that devours the stubble, like a strong people set in battle array, before them the people writhe in pain. All faces are drained of color. They run like muddy men. Notice all the way through, it does not say that they are a fire, or that they are chariots, or they are a strong people, or they are a mighty people. It says no. They are like, their noises like chariots, like fire. They're like a strong people, they run like mighty men. And that is just one of several indicators that makes me convinced this really is just another locust plague that's going to be future to the one in chapter 1. Continuing in verse 4, they climb the wall like men of war. Everyone marches in formation and they do not break ranks. They do not push one another. Everyone marches in his own column. Though they lunge between the weapons, they are not cut down. They run to and fro in the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter at the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and moon grow dark and the stars diminish their brightness. The Lord gives voice before his army for his camp is very great. For strong is the one who executes his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? Now, whether it's locusts or a human army, God's call is the same. Gather together, humble yourselves, repent, trust that God's compassions are sufficient to deal with this problem. We must be more like the pilgrims in our interpretation of the providences around us and be less like the modern skeptic. Verse 12. Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and nursing babes. Let the bridegroom go out of his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. Let the priests who minister to the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not give your heritage to reproach that the nations should rule over them. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? And that's all I'll say on that, but in verses 21 through 27, a time of incredible peace and prosperity is promised to happen after this second locust plague and after repentance. And that too fits the time of the post-exilic community, I think, by far the best. And if you look at verses 25 through 26, you'll see another reason why I lean in the direction. Chapter 2's army is a literal army of locusts, not of humans. Verse 25. So I will restore to you, okay, so this is coming after, right? He's going to restore something that's been removed. By whom is it removed? So I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the crawling locust, the consuming locust, and the chewing locust, my great army which I sent among you. So he's interpreting his own metaphors earlier in, in the book. He's saying what happened to you was literal locusts that devoured everything. I will now restore it to you. So it's not, it's a locust army likened to a human army, not a human army likened to a locust army. Got it? Okay, verse 26. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never be put to shame. Now this instructs us 
that we should humbly entreat God any time we experience planet Earth not blessing us. I actually, I think, should be an anomaly for Christians and more and more an anomaly as the kingdom grows. Uh, it can happen. The reverse can happen, obviously, like it happened to Job and like it's happened to many saints down through history. You can lose things through no fault of your own, like the blind man can be blind through no sin of his own. But our first reaction when things don't go well with us ought to be, Lord, what's going on? Is there something in my life that is hindering these blessings? Is there something in my life where I am displeasing to you? That should be the first impulse of our heart. So even though Job shows that there are exceptions, I think God's general purpose for us is 3 John verse 2, that you may prosper in all things and be in health even as your soul prospers. God designed creation to serve his people. But sometimes he serves his people by disciplining them, right? In any case, in verses 28 and following, we come to the famous passage that was fulfilled in Acts 2. Verse 28 by, begins by saying, and it shall come to pass afterward. Now, Acts 2 interprets that afterward as being the last days of Israel. On kaisercommentary.com, I've detailed, uh, given a detailed um, outline of a timeline with all of the scripture proofs that shows that the last days started with the exile of Babylon and go, went all the way up to AD 70. And so if you look at the verses that are clearly last days that happened before the birth of Christ, I think it proves definitively last days did not begin with the birth of Christ, certainly did not begin with his death, certainly did not begin with AD 70. It began with the Babylonian exile, lasted all the way up to AD 70. So we should expect that this chapter is going to go all the way up to AD 70, and it does. Uh, you'll recognize the words of verses 28 through 29 as Pentecost in AD 30. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maidservants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Now, after Pentecost, what happens? Same things happen here that Jesus predicted would happen. There would be signs in the heavens and signs on the earth and all kinds of uh, scary things that would be happening before another historical day of the Lord in AD 70. All five references to the day of the Lord in Joel refer to judgments in history, not the last day of history. Take a look at verses 30 through 31. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke, the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Now, if those things come right after Pentecost, but before the day of the Lord, they correspond to the signs and the wonders that we looked at in the beginning chapters of Revelation. And there were many, many signs and wonders in the years leading up to AD 70. But the key thing is that Peter quotes every verse from chap uh, chapter 2, verse 28, through to verse uh, uh, 32. So uh, he says all of those verses refer to the last days of Israel and show that we absolutely cannot put a 2,000 year gap between verse 29 and verse 30, as so many people do. I mean, <laughs> when you look at eschatology, you begin to realize smell a rat because there are certain schools of eschatology that all over the Old Testament and the New Testament, they've got these 2,000 year gaps 
where you can't see any gap. You look and look and that, you can't see it, but it's necessitated by their system. It's called eisegesis, okay? There are no, you don't need those kinds of 2,000 year gaps. I want you to notice that in addition to the first century tribulation that made men's hearts fail them for fear of what was coming upon the earth, the gospel message goes forth, verse 32. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. It was only a remnant of Jews who were saved in the last days of Israel. But true to his word, God did keep saving a remnant. And even after Nero almost totally killed off the church, God continued, he saved another 144,000 Jews, exactly 12,000 from each one of the tribes, as we saw in Revelation 7, 1 through 8. So there's both gospel and judgment in the last verses of chapter 2. Okay, chapter 3 is the last section of the book, and its first words, for behold, in those days and at that time, make it clear that this is still not thousands of years in the future. Right? Since Acts 2 quotes Joel 2, 28 through 32 is all being first century, then in those days and at that time means that chapter 3 has to begin in the first century too. Now there are two ways of taking the first verse. The New King James, uh, the NIV, and the ESV all take a premillennial slant on it. Well, actually, it's a futurist slant. It doesn't have to be premillennial. Um, but they, they put... They give the captivity a positive spin as if it has ended. And so the New King James translates it, when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem. Well, here's the problem. If you look up the Hebrew, you don't see the word captives there. You see the word captivity. I bring back a captivity. So there was an earlier captivity, now he's going to bring another captivity. Or the King James renders it this way, I will bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem. The NIV and the ESV are even looser when they paraphrase it. I will restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. Fortunes is not in there. It's captivity that returns. Now this helps us to date the book because there was only one captivity before Joel. That was the exile under Nebuchadnezzar. And there's only one captivity ahead of Joel. That would be the captivity in AD 70. So for this and a bunch of other reasons, I lean in the direction that Joel was written in a post-exilic time. And I mentioned before I started reading, Hosea and Joel form the introduction to all 12 of the minor prophets. So Hosea starts during a time horrible apostasy. And um, that, that's kind of the beginning of the prophets. Joel goes to the end of the prophets and says, hey, God still brings judgments even during a time when there is people who are outwardly, at least looking like they are faithful to the Lord. And we'll see in future ones how these two then set the themes for the rest of the 12 prophets. Uh, it, the ordering is very, very important. It's very cool. So anyway, the literal Hebrew in verse 1 predicts another captivity. Then in verses 2 through 16, God brings a major judgment upon all nations. There is nothing about peace in these verses. It is empire-wide war and destruction, wars and rumors of wars. In fact, verse 10 reverses the language of Isaiah 2 verse 4 and Micah 4 verse 3. Those two passages had predicted that much, much later in Christ's messianic kingdom, there would eventually be no more war and says that 
Uh, swords would be beaten into plowshares, spears would be turned into pruning hooks. But where Isaiah and Micah show what will happen much later in the Messianic kingdom, Joel is showing what's going to happen at the beginning of the Messianic king. At the beginning of the kingdom, there will be no peace. And so verse 10 reverses the language of Isaiah and Micah by saying, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. In other words, every energy is going to be poured into warfare. And as we saw in the book of Revelation, every nation throughout the entire Roman Empire would have massive loss of life. This would be an empire-wide war that would not only destroy Israel, but would destroy Rome. Tacitus says Rome died. It ceased to exist for, I forget how many years, but it was uh, some years and then it got resurrected again. All nations were at war. Verse 14 speaks of multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. But the next verse picks up the language that Jesus used repeatedly to prophesy of imminent lights out for Israel. The sun and moon will grow dark and the stars will diminish their brightness. Now this literally happened. We saw that in the Revelation series. But the literal historical event was a symbol of lights going out for earthly Jerusalem. And from this point on, it is the heavenly Jerusalem that is the only Jerusalem that counts. The spiritual significance of the earthly Jerusalem after AD 70 is done away with. Verse 16, the Lord also will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. We saw in Revelation series, that God was indeed a um, shelter for a literal remnant of Israel, exactly 144,000 that were spared from the great wrath of the day of the Lord and who survived in Pella. Uh, this also marks the time when Satan is cast out of heaven, Revelation 12, and no demons ever have access to heaven again. Verse 17, so you shall know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain, then Jerusalem shall be holy, and no aliens shall ever pass through her again. Now, where does God live now? He does not live in the earthly Jerusalem. He dwells in the heavenly Zion, in the heavenly Jerusalem. And Revelation says that in the first century war against Jerusalem, why did God war against them? Because they were no longer Jerusalem. They were Sodom and Egypt. He says there was also a war in heaven between Michael and his angels and Satan his, and his angels, and Satan and all of his demonic hosts were cast out of heaven, and no longer could they accuse the brethren that they had done for centuries and centuries, as you saw, for example, in Job chapters 1 through 2. Uh, heaven was purified. In fact, the word for alien there uh, does not mean a national human alien, and it doesn't mean, you know, Star Wars kind of alien either. Uh, it just means something illegitimate, something that does not belong. It certainly fits demons. They do not longer belong in, in heaven. But with heaven purified, you can see the last picture on your outline. With heaven purified, the streams from heaven will bring increasing purification to the earth. And Joel refers to the prophecies of millennial peace that Isaiah and Micah had predicted. The wars that characterize the beginning eras of the millennium will eventually be replaced with the peace and the prosperity of the later portions of Christ's kingdom. So verse 18 refers to that trajectory predicted in Isaiah. 
saying, and it will come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drip with new wine, the hills shall flow with milk, and all the brooks of Judah shall be flooded with water. A fountain shall flow from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Acacias. Now the house of the Lord is now in heaven, and the streams of blessing that flow out of heaven are destined to fill the entire earth, purify it, and restore paradise lost. It's the kingdom of heaven invading the earth. And all that he had to do to evoke those images in your mind, at least if you've known Micah and Isaiah, is to quote that one phrase from the heart of Isaiah and from Micah, the rest falls into place. It is this spiritual Israel and this heavenly Jerusalem that will abide forever. And spiritual Egypt and spiritual Jerusalem stand in antithesis from this time and throughout eternity as the last three verses indicate. One is forever cursed, the other is forever blessed. That, my friends, is the message of Joel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the message of Joel. We thank you that there is meaning in all of life, even the things that we have wondering about that we are puzzled over, that we find pain in, there is meaning. You cause all things to work together for the good of your people, for your own glory, for the advancement of your kingdom. And I pray, Father, that you would give us uh, the faith and the wisdom to have, uh, to see this world through new eyes, to have a, a, a spiritual hermeneutic by which we interpret current events. Help us, Father, uh, to learn from Joel to find faith even in the midst of despair. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.